Well, I just want you to know that uh, I'm going to be out of here for three weeks. I'm going to escape all the counseling, all the problems, I hope. I'm going to sneak off to an unknown destination with lots of trees. So um, so if you're wondering where I went, that's where I'm gone. I suppose they will be back eventually. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19, where we're going to be looking at verses 41 through 44 and the Messiah's compassion for Israel. Imagine, you know, getting ready to go on vacation. You've got a little hotel room reserved in a nice, pretty nice place. But, you know, it's towards the bottom floor in the back of the hotel. It's not by the beach. But there's some room mix up and they say, well, we're sorry, but we're going to have to put you in one of our penthouse suites up at the top floor. And so there you are, you're, you're looking out over the whole ocean front and you can see the whole beach and it's just suffering and luxury there. And one day you're sitting on the balcony, you're reading a good book and the sun is out and there's a cool breeze. It's almost lunchtime and you can see the beach. It's just crowded with people. There's there's moms and dads and kids and college students and there's umbrellas and towels and volleyball going on and people are making sand castles and screaming and swimming and you can just barely hear their voices as they're so far down below. And at one point as you're reading a book on the balcony, you just, you just decide to kind of look out for some reason in the ocean and you see something out there which looks kind of strange. It looks like a huge wall of water is rushing to the shoreline. And you kind of look closer. You think, maybe this is like some sort of mirage. Uh, but it isn't. And as that huge wall of water begins to race towards the shoreline, you see boats being capsized. And you stand up realizing that this must be a tsunami. Some earthquake must have happened and now this huge wall of water is just racing to the shoreline and all these people are in peril and you cry out and cry out, but they can't hear you. They can't hear you. And just, just ponder the tension, ponder the grief, ponder the anxiety that would build in you if you saw that approaching and you could do nothing to warn all those people of their impending death. If you can understand that, if you can feel that tension, then you're going to understand how Jesus feels in our text this morning. In Luke chapter 18 and 19, Jesus has has uh, just been, he's really been after people. And Luke has recorded instances of, of people that Jesus trying to rescue from hell we have the the pharisee and the tax collector we have the rich young ruler we have blind bartimaeus we have zacchaeus the chief tax collector all these people luke is recording and jesus is really laboring laboring he's he's got less than a week to live he knows his death is approaching and he just can't endure people perishing because he was sent to seek and save the lost. And so he keeps preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus has arrived in the area of Jerusalem. He's staying over the hill of the Mount of Olives in Bethany. And he has sent his disciples to go get a colt 
from a guy and they go get it and they put their coats on it. And as he's coming over the hill of the Mount of Olives, heading down into the Kidron Valley, uh, all of these disciples who have been following him, not only his disciples, but other curious people who have attached themselves along the way. Not only that, but people from Jericho who saw the miracles that happened there. Not only that, but because it's Passover, there are, there are just Jews are just swamping Jerusalem. They're coming in from all over the place because it's one of the pilgrim feasts. And so there's just people everywhere and they're crowded around Jesus. And now that the Sabbath is over, word has gotten out that the miracle guy, Jesus, who's been, you know, making waves in the country for three years is just over the hill. And so many Jews go, hey, well, let's go see him because I heard he raised this Lazarus guy from the dead. And so there is a a convergence of these two mobs of people and they're putting their coats on the road. They're, they're putting branches on the road. They're waving palm fronds. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus is, is riding into Jerusalem as the triumphant king. They are shouting the messianic psalm of Psalm 118 verse 26, you know, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the king of David. And, you know, you're just thinking, well, it's about time. It's about time that they finally got it right. They finally realized who Jesus is and everything's going to be swell. I mean, look at the, the movement that Jesus has going here. Look at their treating him like the king that he really is. Look at him right in that cult, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9. And everything seems to be great. Everything seems to be wonderful. And then something very unexpected happens. Look with me in your Bibles at Luke chapter 19. Verses 41 through 44 and follow along as I read. And when he, that is Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had only known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. And surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. From this text, I want to point out to you three reasons Jesus wept, what you can learn about those reasons and how you can apply them to your life so that Jesus doesn't weep over you. The first is Jesus weeps over Jerusalem's rejection of their Messiah. Look at verse 41, where it says, and as he approached Jerusalem. So right now he has gone down the Mount of Olives. He's probably crossed the bottom of the Kidron Valley and he's going up the other side. He's heading towards the east gate of Jerusalem, that golden gate. Jerusalem had this temple mount that was huge and on every side it had gates which led into tunnels and those tunnels poured out uh, onto the temple mount. And Jesus is heading for that. As he approaches, look at the middle of verse 41, he saw the city and he wept over it. Keep in mind that there are thousands, thousands of people 
crowded around Jesus. He's making a stir. And then there's all the rest of the people who are there for the, the Passover. And they're all watching this. And they're all seeing Jesus being treated like a king. And they're, they're shouting messianic psalms. They're calling him the king of David. And he is. And then right in the middle of this, Jesus just bursts out into tears and starts weeping. And the word weep here is not like, you know, little sniffles. He's wailing like the death of a loved one. He's, he's crying. He's wailing. He's weeping. And I'm sure that some of the people probably looked and said, oh, look at he's crying. He's so joyful. He's so happy that we're recognizing him as king. And, and look at the joy. Look at the, the tears of joy. He's weeping. But notice the text says he was not weeping for joy. He saw the city of Jerusalem and wept over it. He was not weeping tears of joy, but sorrow for the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, that city that God chose to have his name dwell, his temple built, his glory reside, Zion. Last week we saw that Jesus did things that only God could do. Now we see him do things that are very human. He's weeping, he's crying, he's in pain, he's in anguish as he looks at the city of Jerusalem in its splendor. And at this time, Jerusalem was just at its peak of perfection. I mean, it was was so tricked out. It was built, designed by Herod the Great, had this huge temple mount. It had buildings and roadways and was very modern and gorgeous and ramparts and big sidewalks, staircases bigger than ours, if you can believe it. And in the midst of this, as as Jesus is surrounded by people, he's blubbering and he begins to utter words while he's crying. If you had known that in this day, even you, the things which make for peace and he's crying and who knows how loud he said this. Maybe those close to him only heard it. Maybe others heard it. Somebody heard it because Luke writes it down. And it begs us to ask the question, what things is Jesus talking about and who needs to make Peace with whom? Let's answer the second question first, and then we'll answer the first question second. Who do those in Jerusalem, Jews from all over the Mediterranean world, need to make peace with? God, obviously. Those who have not repented of their sins are hostile to God. They may not see themselves as hostile to God, but because they've rejected Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're hostile. Their sin makes them hostile. They are estranged from God, enemies of God. That's why Paul says what he does in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 8, as he contrasts those who are in the flesh, unbelievers, with those who are in the spirit, believers. And he says this, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds in the same things of the flesh. They just want to please themselves. They just want to have fun. They just want to eat, indulge in sin, drugs, alcohol, immorality, whatever they can to make themselves feel good. Those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on those fleshly things. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, that is, they want to give glory to God. They want to worship God and serve God and evangelize the lost and serve in the church and and do those things that bring God's glory. 
For the mindset in the flesh is death, but the mindset in the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset in the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Because God is perfectly holy, because he is separated from sin, the only way to approach him is to be perfectly holy and separated from sin. But that's a problem when you're a sinner and everybody's a sinner. Therefore, something needs to happen. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to have somebody make peace with God. We need to somebody to help us get Close to God because we are estranged from God. Our sin causes to be far from God, to be unlike God. But of course, in order to be reconciled, there must be forgiveness. There must be justification. In order for there to be forgiveness and justification, there must be atonement. And in order for there to be atonement, some perfect person must die and give their lives so that sinners can go free. And of course, we know who that is. It's Jesus himself. Before believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, people are separated from God. In a relationship, rational sense, they have no relationship with God. They're apart. They need Jesus to bring them close to God as their mediator They need to make peace. And what allows us to make peace with God? It's the gospel. It's faith in Christ. God in human flesh, crucified for sinners, resurrected for their justification. It is the good news that if we turn from our sins and we place our faith and trust in Christ alone to save us, he will do that. In Acts chapter 10, verse 36, Peter tells the Gentiles the message that he was sent to preach, saying, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You want to be at peace with the Lord of all? Then you must come through Jesus. Before we come to faith in Jesus, we are at war with God. Even if you're religious, even if you do things the world thinks are good, because your sin is there and it hasn't been atoned for, you try to approach an infinite holy God and he doesn't want to have anything to do with you. It's just over. You need grace. You need peace. That's why Paul and Peter all start their letters and end their letters, grace and peace. Why? Because every believer has received grace and has peace with God. And no matter how religious a person may be, if they never repented of their sins, if they've never received Christ as their Savior, they have no peace with God, even if they think they do. Isaiah 48, verse 22, and 57, verse 21, both say the same thing. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. There's no peace. Oh, they may have peace with their friends, They may have peace with themselves. They may have peace in their sinful pursuits, but they don't have peace with their creator. Paul says of unbelievers in Romans 3, 17, in the path of peace, they have not known. They may have good intentions. They may say they believe in God, but they're like the demons who believe in God, but won't obey him. 
They don't want Jesus ruling their life, telling them what to do. And because of this, they're enemies and they have no peace with their creator. But when someone turns from their sins and believes in Lord Jesus Christ, when they place their faith in Christ, all of a sudden they have the blood of Christ, which cleanses them. They have atonement, perfect atonement for their sins. They are justified. And because of that, they can be reconciled with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And most of the Jews surrounding Jesus that day did not believe in him. They didn't trust him. Now they were willing to try him out. I mean, he had a good movement going. And if he could wipe out the Romans, if he could drive them back, if he could exalt Israel, yeah, they'd keep him. But it was all selfish. They needed peace with God. They didn't understand the things that made for peace. They were at enmity with God. And they thought, well, yeah, God likes us. It'd be like a terrorist, you know, blowing up a building, killing thousands of people and then saying, hey, but I waited for the crosswalk light. That doesn't make him at peace with society. He needs to be in prison. He needs the death sentence. And just because he did some little good doesn't erase all the evil he did. Well, just because you do some little good doesn't erase all the evil either. If you don't know Christ, God just sees the evil you've done. And everything you've done is evil because you won't come to his son who's willing to forgive you and submit to him as your Lord. And so as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, as he looks at the city, he realizes there's so many people here who don't know me, who have rejected me. And so he weeps. Secondly, Jesus weeps over their spiritual blindness. Look at the end of verse 42, where we see part of God's judgment has already fallen upon Israel for their hard-hearted and constant rejection of their Messiah. Jesus, still weeping, still speaking to Jerusalem, says to, in sobs and tears, that not only do they not know the things which make for peace, he says, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The verb tense here is this, that this has happened to them from someone else. They are now presently blinded because somebody who is in control of people understanding spiritual truth has decided to make sure they don't understand so they perish and go to hell. Now, you might be thinking, man, that is radical. Why would God do that? I mean, if Jesus is the Savior and God doesn't like to see people perish, then why would he blind people to the truth? Because of their constant rejection. Think about this. First, they had all the prophecies in the Old Testament which said, this is who the Messiah is. He's going to be born of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be born of a virgin. That one's hard to fake. He's going to grow up. There's going to be a forerunner. He's going to cry out and lead the way. He's going to do miracles. I mean, all of these things happened. All of these prophecies were fulfilled and... What happened? They rejected him. I mean, think about Jesus' birth. Think about 
You know, what happened with Zacharias and Elizabeth and her getting pregnant in his old age and he seeing the angel in the temple and he telling everybody, uh, you know, through writing or signs what happened and him not being able to talk. And then as soon as he named John, being able to talk and then being able to tell everybody what happened, the text says that the, the, all of Judea was talking about these things. And then think about Mary and, and the angel appearing to her and the angel appearing to Joseph and the virgin birth and the angels and the shepherds and the magi. I mean, these things were not like, you know, secret things. God was letting people know the Messiah was coming. He was declaring to all these people what was going on and they were rejecting, rejecting, rejecting. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. I mean, he's not some sort of wallflower. Man, he is. He's crying out. He's down by the Jordan, one of the major places where people funnel in to come up to Jerusalem from Jericho. He's down there at the Jordan River. Repent! Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand! Repent! I mean, he's baptizing thousands. Thousands are going down and he's telling them, oh, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And they reject him. Then Jesus himself shows up. He wanders through the country for three years, healing all manner of disease and sickness, casting out demons, doing all sorts of miracles, calming the sea, resurrecting the dead, healing the blind. I mean, everything. I mean, these were not low profile things. They were without excuse. Not only that, but think about Jesus even when he was growing up. You remember this story? There's just that one little story that Luke includes of Jesus' kind of, you know, early years. Remember when uh, the big feast had happened and everybody was on their big caravan up to go back to Nazareth. And three days later, his parents said, well, where's Jesus? Well, I thought he was with Uncle Bob. He's gone. He's not back there. We checked all over. He's not here. So they go back to Jerusalem. They scour the city. They keep looking, looking, looking. And you remember what happened? They find him where? In the temple, sitting among the rabbis, discussing the scriptures, asking questions, answering questions. And they marveled at how much he knew. And you remember when they said, man, where have you been? Why did you do this to us? Which, you know, typical parental response. And remember what he said? I had to be in my father's house. You know that every single time there was a feast and probably other times as well. Where did Jesus go? Temple. To talk about the scriptures of the rabbi. They knew him. He did that when he was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, all the way up to 30. He had to be there. He loved to be there. They all said, oh, here comes Jesus. Man, that's that young man. Man, That guy really knows his stuff. He's got some incredible insights. So, you know, all the rabbis knew him. It's not like he's, he's not known. But they keep rejecting. They keep rejecting him. And there's a scary lesson to learn here. And it is this. You can grow old and calloused under the preaching of the gospel and never come to Christ. If you keep rejecting the truth after hearing it many times, God may blind you permanently to the truth so that you cannot get saved. 
Now we saw the opposite of something, well, something very similar to like this. If you look back in Luke 18, verse 34, you remember what happened? Jesus kept saying, oh, by the way, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to crucify me. And three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And all the disciples like, oh, what's that? They don't seem all that bothered about it. Luke 18, 34 says, but the disciples understood none of these things. The meaning of this statement was hidden from them. They did not comprehend these things that were said. I mean, you know, he says it over and over. They didn't understand. They didn't comprehend. They didn't know. I mean, they just, they didn't know. Why? And remember, we talked about why would God, why was the statement hidden from them? Who hid it? God hid it. Why would God hide the knowledge that his son was going to die on the cross from his very own disciples? We talked about that, right? Because what do you think would happen if, you know, he had 100, 200 disciples following him around and all those disciples who loved him knew that he was going to die if he went to Jerusalem? What would they do? You're not going to Jerusalem. We're keeping you away from Jerusalem. If we have to tackle you and blindfold you and sneak you off to the wilderness, you're not going there. And with all good intentions, they would have been fighting against God's will for Jesus. And so Jesus had to die for those very disciples who loved him. And so in order to prevent their uprising, to try and prevent it, what did God do? He blinded them from the truth so that Jesus could make atonement for their sins and save them. Because God loved them. But that's not the case here. The case in our text is a judgment of God upon them because they have rejected Christ so many times. You know, the only way you can really understand the truth in an experiential way, understand the power of the truth working in your life is if the Holy Spirit of God illumines you, is what theologians call it, turns on the light switch so that you can understand it. Now, if that doesn't happen, then you're kind of like the FM radio trying to dial in an XM signal. It just doesn't work. You can go out in your car and go, I'll get some XM radio and just turn your FM dial back and forth. You'll never get it. You got to have the XM receiver. And so it is, you can't just look at the Bible. You can learn all the stories, but if you want the truth to impact your life, if you want to experience the power of God's word, God has to grant that. Otherwise, you're just like, oh. It's the same thing you see when you tell somebody about Christ and you're really excited and your carotid arteries thumping and you're telling them about Jesus and he's so great and he died on the cross and if you repent, you believe. And you're just like, yeah! You're all, you know, your heart's racing and you're all so excited and they look at you like, dude, what's wrong with you? The Holy Spirit isn't working there. Not yet. And so at times God hides the truth even from believers and sometimes from unbelievers who reject the truth so many times that God says, it's over. Your rejection is over and I'm going to seal it to make sure you don't get in. And maybe you've come to church for a very long time. You know the Bible stories, maybe even serve, maybe even give. Maybe you can tell somebody the gospel quite easily. Maybe you've even led somebody to Christ. 
but you are kind of like a clock that's wound up by forces outside of you. The forces of religion, the peer pressure of friends and family, all of that is what drives your religion. It's not the power of God within you and the person of the Holy Spirit. It's not the grace of God, the saving grace of God in your life, which makes you want to follow Christ and serve Christ and love Christ and just grow in the Lord. That's not driving you. It's all external. You're like those Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3, 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Paul says, avoid such men as these. There are those who, oh yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I take communion and, you know, I do this and I serve. And then there's no real love there. There's no love for the Lord. There's no reverence. It's just religion served up by rote, cold, dead, not saved. Like Judas doing ministry, hanging around believers, talking the talk on your way to hell. Because why? Because you just don't want Christ ruling over your life. You want your sins. You want your autonomy. You don't want to bear up under the shame of somebody thinking that you just didn't know the Lord all these years, though you said you did, but didn't. And there's all these reasons and all these excuses. And every time you hear the gospel, there's just one more reason. Not this time, not this time. And so as Jesus approaches Jerusalem in our text, he knows it's full of hard-hearted Jews. And some of those Jews have been permanently blinded to the truth so that they will never believe, so that they will perish. And he's the Savior, and he came for them. He showed himself to them in so many ways. And now the judgment of God, blindness, has come upon them. And so he weeps. Third, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem's destruction. Look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Just stop there. Jesus is prediction, predicting the destruction of Jerusalem with his temple mountain and everything else. This is going to occur 37 years from this time in Jesus' life. And so he, he weeps because he knows Jerusalem, which means city of peace, will soon be the city of war. The Jews were so proud of their temple mount complex. It was nice. It was nice. All this marble and beautifully carved stone was brought in. All these gates with these giant staircases. So no matter what side from the temple mount, you could just walk up onto it. And you just come out and there in an area equivalent of 20 football fields were the worship area. And then there was this huge portico around the whole perimeter in case it was sunny and you wanted a little shade. There was over 1,000 columns holding up this portico. And then in the middle, there was this smaller wall, and then there was this other little mount, and then there was the temple itself made out of pure white marble with gold trim. It was so bright that when you looked at it, it would almost just hurt your eyes. Glistening there, radiant, dazzling in appearance. And it was designed in by Herod the Great, who is, you know, the greatest architect of pretty much the ancient Near Eastern world. He did things that are just 
he did things we can't even do today. He was so good. And he had designed this thing so perfectly, so painstakingly that even at one of these maximum capacity feast weeks, it would function fine. All the Levites, all the priests, all the worshipers, everybody could come in and out easily. There was lots of exits. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. And the Jews were so proud of it. They had been working on it for 46 years up to that point. And just in a couple more years, they were just finishing up the final touches. But Jesus says a barricade will be thrown up against the city of Jerusalem. And that is exactly what happened. In 70 AD, the Romans laid siege to the city Why? Because the Jews got fed up and tired with the Romans telling them what to do and they decided to do a little revolt. Now, that was kind of an insane thing. The Romans were professional soldiers. They lived to fight. They were trained to fight. The Jews were just religious. That's it. They were religious. They had sticks. And Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived at the time, says that all the exits of the city were blocked by the Romans who wanted to destroy the rebellious Jews. Thousands unable to leave the city or get supplies died of starvation and war. Josephus in his Antiquities, book 5, chapter 12, section 3, writes, quote, So all the hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people by whole houses and families. Upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged, the children also. And the young men wandered about the marketplace like shadows all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wherever their misery seized them, end quote. What happens is when you lay siege to the city, you make sure that nobody can escape and nobody can get in. No supplies come in and out. And so those who are inside start starving. But the problem is the Jews were so fanatic, they were so angry, they decided to just hold off to the bitter end. Why? Because the Romans, once they rebelled sent false teachers in there and the false teachers preach that, listen, the Messiah is going to come and rescue you right at the very last moment. So just hang in there. And that kept a lot of Jews from trying to escape. So they all just stayed in the city. They were all starting to starve. They didn't run for their lives. And the Romans just encamped about them and waited until they got really weak and sick. And a lot of people died before they would go in there and take them out. Later in book six, chapter one, section one, Josephus says, quote, thus did the miseries of Jerusalem go worse and worse every day. And the seditious were still more irritated by the calamities they were under. The seditious are a reference to the Jews who were fighting against the Romans. Even while the famine preyed upon them and after it had preyed upon the people. Indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench, which was a hindrance to those that would make sallies out of the city and fight the enemy. 
But as the, those were to go in battle array who had been already committed 10,000 murders had to tread upon those dead bodies as they marched along. End quote. There were so many dead people in the city that the Jews, the, the Jewish who wanted, who wanted to fight the Romans had to walk on the dead bodies of their relatives to fight the, the Romans. There were so many dead Jews held up and dying and dead in the city. And Jesus knows all of this. And that's why he weeps over Jerusalem. Look at verse 44. And they will level you to the ground. The destruction of the city might be imagined, but the temple and its complex, you've got to be kidding. What do you mean level to the ground? That thing was huge, man. It was massive. There are stones that they use that are a hundred tons. You don't just, you know, knock those over. Even with a bulldozer, a hundred tons is huge. And so any Jew who heard that the whole city and the Temple Mount was going to be knocked down, leveled to the ground, they would have thought that statement to be made by a madman. Yet it happened. Josephus gives us detailed account in his antiquities. The Jews had revolted against the Romans. The Romans, angry at their rebellion, you know, paid these Jews to lie to the other ones, so they were all held up in the city. Many Jews were thinking the Messiah's going to come, he's going to come, but Jesus already came, and they rejected him. The Roman soldiers were burning some of the buildings on the Temple Mount, but had been given orders not to burn the temple itself. Titus, the Roman general, had a conference with his commanders about what should be done. It was finally agreed that the fire should be put out because it would cause the Romans more grief if they burnt the temple than if they were just to leave it standing because the Jews were just so fanatic about their temple. They said, if we do this, it's just going to be, they're just going to freak out. Let's just put out the fires and see if we can restore peace. So orders were given to put out the fires. Josephus writes, quote, so Titus retired into the tower of Antonia. Now, if you remember, the slide was up earlier. Antonia is in the northwest quadrant. There's four big towers and it overlooks the Temple Mount. The Jews didn't like that either, that the the Roman soldiers had this huge fortress on the north of their Temple Mount to spy on the Jews. So Titus is up there. And he decided to resolve to storm the temple the next day early in the morning because all these rebellious Jews were held up there. And he would do this with his whole army into a camp around about the holy house. But as for that house, God had for certain long ago doomed it to fire. And now that fatal day was come. And what... What Josephus is alluding to is a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 verse 26, which predicted that this would happen. He goes on to say, for upon Titus's retiring, the seditious, these rebellious Jews, lay still for a little while and then attacked the Romans again. And when those that guarded the holy house fought with those that quenched the fire that was burning in the inner court of the temple. In other words, the Romans are trying to put out the fire and the Jews are attacking the Romans. The Romans are trying to help the Jews and the Jews are attacking the Romans. Now, how would that make you feel if you were a Roman? But these Romans put the Jews to flight and proceeded as far as the holy house itself. 
At which time one of the soldiers, without staying for any orders, and without any concern for the dread upon at so great an undertaking, and being hurried on by a certain divine fury, snatched something out of the materials that were on fire, and being lifted up by another soldier, he set fire to the golden window. Now, at that time, the temple had the huge portico around the whole outside of the mound, and then inside another little wall, then inside... There was the temple itself. It was on a mount. And they put high up on the temple these windows. And obviously they trimmed them with gold. And that is when they were inside the holy place or the holy of holies. Then they let incense off. The incense would go up and come out these high windows. It was through one of those high windows that this Roman soldier in the back of the temple where the holy of holies is throws in a firebrand. And he said fire to a golden window through which there was a passage to the rooms that were around about the holy house on the north side of it. As the flames went upward, the Jews made a clamor such as so mighty an affliction required and ran together to prevent it. And now they spared not their lives any longer nor suffered anything to restrain their force since that holy house was perishing for whose sake it was that they kept such a guard about it, end quote. In other words, the Jews just... Our temple's on fire! And these guys, they just threw themselves at the Roman soldiers. They just went into fury. And so the Roman soldiers who are trained just hack them down. They're just cutting them down, one after another, slaying them. The Jews were out of their mind with rage. And Josephus goes on to explain how Titus and Caesar tried to get the soldiers to quit fighting and to put out the flames. But there was such a loud commotion by the Jews who were so frantic and angry at the soldiers. And the soldiers were so angry at the Jews that the soldiers ignore all orders. And in their passion just sought to exterminate every Jew they could find. And the magnificent temple constructed by Herod caught fire. Its huge cedar beams overlaid with gold caught fire. And the whole thing burnt down until there was nothing but a stone shell. A charred stone shell. But that wasn't the end of it. The Romans realized that there was a lot of gold on that. And now that it's burnt down, no use letting that gold go to waste. But the gold had melted in the fire and dribbled in between the cracks of the stones. So they dismantled every single stone of the temple so that not one stone was left upon another. Look again at verse 44. Jesus also laments and your children within you. That is your children are going to be taken down within you. And you know, if you're a parent, you protect your children. You watch over your children. And so if the children are going to be dying, so are the parents. Because parents will lay down their life for the children. Their parents will protect their children, hide their children, try to get their children to escape. And so if the children are dying, so are the parents. Look at the middle of verse 44 where Jesus explains the extent of destruction. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. In other words, the whole Jerusalem, the whole city will be destroyed. The temple, everything, every bridge, every wall, every house, every structure, every marketplace, every column knocked down. I mean, this is like such a psychotic prophecy. It is such a dumb thing to even believe. To even utter And yet it happened. It happened just like Jesus said, just like Daniel predicted it would. Josephus in book seven, chapter one, section one writes, quote, now as soon as the army 
had no more people to slay or to plunder because there remained none to be objects of their fury. Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest magnificence and much of the wall that enclosed the city on the west side. This wall was spared in order to afford a camp for such as were to lie in garrison, as were the towers also spared in order to demonstrate the prosperity to posterity what kind of city it was and how well fortified which the Roman valor has subdued. But for the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even to the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came there believe it had ever been inhabited, end quote. They went to the wall of these huge stones and tore it down to the very foundation, spread them all around, knocked down every house, every building, every column, everything in the portico, raised everything off so thoroughly that if you went there, you would never know there was ever a city there. There was just burnt stone and rubble. Not only that, they went around in Jerusalem and had a lot of trees, lots of trees all over the city and all over the hills. The Romans cut down every single tree and burn it. Every one. So Jerusalem was nothing but a stone rubble heap in the middle of a burnt wasteland. And that's why Jesus weeps. Daniel 9, 26 speaks of of this, it says, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. He, Jesus will die and have nothing. And the people, the prince who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to an end. There will be war. Desolations are determined. Then Jesus declares the reason why all of this judgment that he's weeping about is going to come upon them. Look towards the end of verse 44. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God, out of love for fallen humanity, sent his son, his only begotten son, whom he loved into a world to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to fulfill all those prophecies, to have a forerunner, to have angels proclaim him, to do miracles for three years, to talk with rabbis, to show people that he was the Messiah. And they rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. They did not recognize the time of their visitation. And so judgment would come upon them. God is long-suffering, He is patient, He is kind, He is gracious, He is compassionate, but He is not ever suffering. And there comes a time when people sin against mercy so many times that then judgment comes. And all of what happened in Jesus' day and later in that first century with the destruction of Jerusalem is in principle what is happening today as Jesus weeps for sinners who will not come to him, who don't want him reigning over their lives, who don't want him to be Lord, don't want him to be master, don't want him to be king. An unbeliever, Jesus weeps for you. And you need to hear his voice. Today is the day of salvation. He's calling out to you. He's saying, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus wants to save you. He wants to redeem you. That's why he came into this world. And if you keep rejecting, keep rejecting, 
There may come a day and it may be there for some of you already where God says, it's over. You are on your way to hell for certain. And so Jesus weeps for those who reject him as their Messiah. Jesus weeps over those who have rejected the truth so many times. God himself brings blindness upon them as a judgment. And Jesus weeps as he looks and sees not only all the unbelievers in Jerusalem who will perish for eternity, but all those in humanity which will perish for eternity because they have rejected him as their Lord, Messiah, and King. Please don't let that be you. Please don't be one of those people that Jesus weeps over. He will save you. He will change you. He will forgive you. He will reconcile you to the Father. He will cause you to be born again. But you must bow the knee. You must believe in Him as your Lord and Savior. And if you don't do that, judgment is certain. Let's pray. Father, what a sobering text this is. And there are texts like this that sometimes I wish I could just skip over. But I know you want us to hear about these things because it shows your great love, your great compassion and mercy for sinners. That there are so many people in the world today who have heard the truth and rejected it. So many who know about Jesus but don't want him. So many who have been turned off by false religions or hypocritical Christians or hypocritical churches that have unbelieving pastors in the pulpit and false worshipers. Father, I pray that if there are people here this morning who don't know you, and I'm sure there are, that they right now would turn their eyes upon Jesus, look full in his marvelous faith, that they would grab hold of his grace, his extension of his hand, saying, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. Father, save them, change them, grant them repentance, change their life, that you might show yourself mighty to conquer sin and to save sinners so that Jesus doesn't have to weep over anybody here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, thou, my King, would die for me? Let's stand and sing.